if you've not been with us during Advent, <clears throat> we, uh, every Advent, go to the lectionary, which is a way of reading all of Scripture over time. So they give you a, a, a psalm, an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading. Um, in place of the psalm, they, we read the Magnificat, which was our call to worship um, this morning. I'm going to read it again, just because, you know, sometimes people miss the very beginning or just aren't there yet. Mentally, you just heard the Old Testament reading from Hunter and Emily. They read from Isaiah 61. So I'm going to read our New Testament reading, which is from 1 Thessalonians, and then a gospel reading from John. First Thessalonians, this is from 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this is from John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And this is Mary's song from Luke chapter 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let me pray for us. Living God, we give you thanks for the words of your scriptures. We thank you that across time and out of the mouths and pens of many people, you have delivered the same truth to us. God, we pray that by the help of your Holy Spirit, we would hear what it is they have always been saying. May our hearts be soft before you, that we would become the people that Paul describes 
We're always rejoicing, always praying, always looking to you in hope. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The, the eyes of these texts, the eyes of our hearts are, are drawn by these texts to the poor, to people in need. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing to read these scriptures, hear these scriptures in this context as Americans. Um, we, we don't have a very good framework to hear and understand what is being described. And in many ways, this is not addressed to us. Um, America is the wealthiest place, the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. If you look at our poverty line, where we set our federal poverty line, and compare that to the median income of most nations of the earth today, uh, it's, our, our poverty line is far above it. We're significantly more wealthy than the average person in most nations of the earth. The, the reality is that um, poverty is, for us, feels like an anomaly. Po poverty exists where we live. It does. Um, it may feel more hidden, but it's real. There are kids in our community who experience food insecurity. The, they go to school. One of the primary reasons is because they get a breakfast and they get a lunch. And so when it's snow day and my kids are excited about not going to school, some kids in my community are saying, well, I guess I don't get to eat today. That's real. But it's hard to identify. And it's hidden. But that, something like that experience is the, the majority's experience. The majority of the world has a much more tenuous and fragile relationship with food and for provision. And that's certainly the case for the people who are listening to Isaiah, who are listening to John the Baptist, who are reading the letters of the New Testament. Um, the, the norm is what we would only identify as poverty. There really isn't a middle class in the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean world. There might be some sort of stratification of how comfortable people are, but for the normal person who may not be considered poor in the day of Isaiah or in the day of Jesus, they, what they experience in their non-poverty is for us punishing and grinding poverty. Because what they have to do is work manually every single day of their life, apart from one if they're an Israelite, and if they don't, they will starve to death. That is their life. And that is foreign to us. So we come to texts like these, and we are, in a sense, somewhat disadvantaged. It is, it is hard to hear what is being described in Mary's song and in the announcement of the prophet Isaiah. But when the people are listening and hearing these words, 
The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, bind to the brokenhearted, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. These are people who are living within those categories much more frequently and in, in a much more literal and real sense than most of us in this room. And Mary is singing a song about the one who is in her womb who will come and do something about this. We don't know what to do about poverty. I, I would suggest, this, this is my experience growing up in church and in relatively conservative communities and neighborhoods like this. I didn't know how to think about people having living beneath the poverty line. Um, because wealth is so readily available and accessible where we live, and it is on display in so many ways, the attitude is often either explicitly, mostly not, but kind of implicitly, a kind of mystif mystification, like, why would you choose to be poor? Why would you keep making dumb choices? and not just go grab some of the wealth that is everywhere. And so there is a, a kind of inherent suspicion of people who are living beneath the poverty line. They must be doing something wrong, because obviously anybody could just not be poor. That's not the reality that the texts are speaking to, nor is it the reality that most of the world lives in. Being poor is not an option. It's not a choice. It is life. Most people now and across all of time have lived in the context of grinding poverty, making it day to day. And what are we to do about it? What are we supposed to do? You know, um, I would assume, like, the, the attitude that I describe to peop towards people who are living with lesser means, you know, I, I would say probably most of us in this room don't feel that way. You're, you're probably, I assume you all are better people than I am, and I don't, I wouldn't talk that way about people in our community who, who live with lesser means. I wouldn't say that. I, I don't think I view people with suspicion. I know that poverty is complex, and... Um, most people don't choose that. It's just a lot of things have happened. I, I understand that. I think you understand that. And some people give their lives and a good portion of their income to relieving poverty. They volunteer with free time, or that just becomes their vocation, that becomes their work, uh, trying to relieve poverty in this neighborhood or in neighborhoods abroad. And it's wonderful. It's commendable, necessary work. And yet, how am I supposed to do anything? Um, the people who, who give their lives to this work uh, do far more than me, are better people than me. I, I would wager that if you looked on the tags on their shirts, on their clothing, that it would probably say something like what it says on the tags on my shirts. Made in 
some country far away. China, Indonesia, Philippines, whatever. I buy the clothes that I buy uh, when I buy them. The, the tiers of choice making are, are they affordable? Are they reasonable in appearance, at least on an average looking person? Can I make them last a long time? And I, I do try to make those clothes last a long time. That's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to make affordable choices so that I can be generous in my life. And I think that's probably true of people who are working in that kind of poverty. But if we follow those tags, we follow where those clothes came from. What do the hands look like that made my shirt? How big are they? How old is the person who made my clothes? What's their paycheck look like? What does their home look like? The truth is, my wardrobe is built on the backs of the poor. I, I, I consider myself a reasonably conscientious person. My wardrobe is built on the backs of the poor. And I don't know how you escape that. I don't know how you get out of that. Unless you make all of your own clothes, which I don't know you. I would like to know you because I have some things that need to be repaired. That would be very helpful <laughs> to me. Well, let, let's say you do make all of your own clothes. You, you've extricated yourself from that particular piece of the system. Let's look at the food that you eat, <clears throat> the food that I eat. If you drive from one side of the country to the other, you'll drive through the plains. And you will pass fields that are measured in miles. And they will be one crop for miles as far as the eye can see. That's not normal. They didn't used to look like that. It's not something that naturally occurs in nature. But that system of farming has reduced hunger all around the world. Far fewer people are hungry today than they were 100 years ago. It's amazing. But people have begun to look at that system and see that if you do that, if you sow one crop into miles of field and you just year after year plant that in there, even if you rotate through, if you just monocrop mile after mile after mile of land, what will you do to the soil? This unnatural thing will erode and leach and significantly undernourish the soil. And that system that while it has fed the world in a lot of ways, has incentivized communities far from here that you have to fly to and go a long way to, to leave natural, local, sustainable growth, to jump into that market to be able to make money. Because this is what the world is now buying and selling. And so they're, they're leaving aside what their land can support in order to be a part of this system. And, and people have said, you know, if we change this system, there is a way to take these miles and miles of of earth and, and to plant all kinds of different things and to have cover crops and 
a multitude of plant organisms to rehabilitate the soil, give us better, healthier food. If you and I tried to switch that, do you know who would suffer the most? It's the poor. My groceries from Aldi exist because of the way that things are right now. And whatever my capability is to adjust to a new kind of system that might more responsibly steward the land, there will be millions of people whose grocery bills will now eat up larger and larger and larger proportions of their already meager income. And many people in this room will be able to be fine. But who won't? The poor. And I don't know how to get out of that. I don't know how to be responsible enough or conscientious enough. The system is so entangled into every feature of my life that I don't know how to see anything change about the poverty of this world. And I say that as somebody who has a relatively larger degree of power because I have more wealth. And I live in the country with more wealth. And here come the prophets saying that God sees. That God himself, Isaiah is promising, will take up the cause of the poor. And it, it's, it's difficult to hear this as an American, as a comfortable person, as a wealthier person. It's, hear, it's hard to hear the nature of this, our, our instinct is sort of like to translate it into meaning something else so that we can be included. That's our first impulse is I want to be a part of what this is talking about. it. But it's important to not include yourself for a second and to hear instead the prophets are speaking a promise that the way the world is will not forever be this way. Mary sings this song that her son will usher in a new era where God will work on behalf of the hungry and send the rich away empty. God has seen the state of things and he will make it right. You know, the, this is the, the strange nature of being a Christian <clears throat> is you are supposed to acknowledge the reality of the world. That's what Advent is really, it's, it's about what we're doing, is why we're so hungry for the coming of Jesus, is because we are looking into the darkness and naming it and telling the truth about it. And yet we also have these passages in First Thessalonians and elsewhere that tell us, hey, rejoice always. What is that about? You know, Paul is living in the context that I'm describing where poverty is more the rule than the exception. And he's telling these Christians, a, a, a minority of a minority, that they should be people who are always rejoicing and their hearts and minds are con turning constantly to prayer. And they're sort of sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for the, the voice of the Spirit through the mouths of the prophets and He's telling them that they're supposed to be this kind of people. How is that even possible? How is it possible then 
for people living in those conditions. How is it possible for us now if we're going to tell the truth about the world? If we ourselves, even if we are not enmeshed in the poverty of this world, but are participating in it and can't pull ourselves out, how are we supposed to be people who look into the reality of the dark and are rejoicing always? It's a tension. It's almost a mystery. And that's where John the Baptist comes in. You know, I, when I was getting ready for this week and looking at the gospel readings, I was like, this is such a weird, why did they put this here? It's just like this conversation about footwear and water treatment and who is John and is he this or is he that? Just really weird. But at the heart of what's going on with John is, I think, the heart of the response to the poverty and the darkness of this world. It's in the first thing that, that John says. Because they ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? And the first thing that he says is, I am not the Christ. And that is the heart of the Christian's posture in the world. I am not the Christ. Our self-understanding as Christians is first a refusal to claim to be something that we are not. So it leaves us in the position to look into the world and to feel overwhelmed. We are allowed to feel overwhelmed. And, and I would say, especially for people in the place and time where we live, if you have not felt overwhelmed by the darkness and poverty of this world, you should be. You should not allow yourself to be distracted by the comforts of this age and of this world, of this place that you live. You should be discomforted so that you can hear the truth that comes so strikingly from John's mouth, that I am not the Christ. Because that confession carries with it an implicit statement that there is a Christ and that there is a need for a Christ and that this world is hungry for the Christ and I am not him. This is a piece of liberation, this statement from John. It, it, is, it is the key to allowing us to stand and to stare darkness in the face. The world is aching and longing for the relief of its poverty. You know, this question, how do you deal with the poverty of this world? It is at the heart of all kinds of political and power conflict. Because people want to solve this in various ways, and they have all kinds of philosophies on on how you should, who should be doing it, how much government, where government, who has control of what. And what you can look at, however you might answer that question, is that everybody is terrible at it. Everybody is terrible. There has yet to be a utopian society where this is all fixed. You know, you, you might be tempted to say, it's our system that's actually the best that's ever been. Maybe that's true, but I would point you again to your clothes and to your food. 
We hide the evidence. We hide how our abuse does not quite fit the narrative. But every other person who has grasped for power has ultimately revealed themselves to be untrustworthy. <laughs> Their ideas might sound good. They might seem like they can work. And there is a temptation to believe that this leader or that party or this political philosophy, they are the Christ. And everyone has fallen short. And somebody has paid the price every time. The poor. Because every false Christ will do what every false Christ will always do. Trample upon the weak and make their blood their currency. They are not the Christ, and I am not the Christ. I cannot fix it. I don't know where to buy my clothes. I don't know where to buy my food. I don't know what to do with myself. I am not the Christ. But Christ is coming. All of the hope on which all of these scriptures hang is all about the hope of the Christ. It's Jesus. John says there's one in your midst right now who you may not know, who is more powerful than me to the extent that I cannot tie his shoes. Jesus will take up Isaiah 61 and he will say, this is me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. Who, who is the one that carries all of the hope and confidence in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's Jesus. You may will and work and rejoice and pray all the days of your life, but who will be the one who will be faithful and true to his word and accomplish what he has promised in you and the world? It's Jesus. Because he is the Christ. This, this is the marvel of the story that we are telling in Advent and of what we are seeking and looking forward to in the second coming of Jesus. Because all of our natural solutions is redistribution of wealth, wealth creation, tax structures. It is power exercise to try to fix all of these problems that are like a whack-a-mole of evil. You, you strike one down and another arises someplace else. It's a game you and I can never win because all of our impulse is to accomplish this and subdue it by our own strength and power and dominion. And the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus of Nazareth has the audacity to be born with no power at all. It is unfathomable, inconceivable, that the one who actually by rights wields all power has so completely identified himself with the powerless. Jesus, the Son of God, knows the poorest people of this earth intimately and personally because he was one. 
You cannot be more impoverished and powerless than a little child. Utterly dependent upon other people for your own provision. That was the Son of God. And only Jesus, instead of entering into the temptation of the whack-a-mole of power and evil, instead cast himself at the mercy of the powers of this world to be consumed by their own darkness, the grinding gears of self-orientation and self-glorification and self-protection and the exaltation of self through power. He threw himself in the wheels of all of darkness's power and only Jesus came out the other side. It is only Jesus with the power to disarm and untangle the powers of evil that have wrapped themselves around you and I. I do not get to be the Christ. You do not get to be the Christ. No one gets to be the Savior except for this miraculous, beautiful Savior who would embrace the poverty of this world, take it upon himself, and offer in exchange the wealth and the riches of his kindness and the great joy of living in his life. Only Jesus gets to be the Savior. And now, it does not mean that as Christians, we live a life that Paul describes, sitting in our seats, just sort of singing songs and rejoicing always and you know, making some prayers and all of this stuff. We can actually be contributors in the world when we understand the right size that we occupy, the place that we occupy in the world, I do not have to alleviate the world's poverty. I cannot alleviate the world's poverty. But God has called me into his kingdom, transferred me from the darkness into his marvelous light, and all I do my entirety of my life is imagine what would the world look like if Jesus were actually king? And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I live out that imagination. And the future comes forward just a little bit. And though it feels overwhelming, it feels like I'm not doing anything to push back the dark. It doesn't feel like anything. Like I'm doing anything to dismantle the poverty of this world. I can still rejoice because I am not the Christ. Jesus is. And he will finish what he started. And I am merely a child at play with the Father. If you're here today bearing the weight and bearing in your own body this alternate confession that you are the Christ, you will carry the weight, the immense weight of crushing darkness. Like if you face the world that is so dark and so poor in so many ways and recognize the way that you participate in that and contribute to it in your own varied and many ways as I do, and all you do is say, how do I fix this? God's prescription to you is not just to reorganize your, your income and be a, a better employee or buy the right stuff or not buy the right stuff or just 
fix your behavior, none of that stuff will fix what you are staring at in the world. And the hopelessness of that will smash you. You will never be a good enough person. You will not be able to untangle yourself from the web of evil and darkness of this world. It's not possible. And if you continue to try, you will get yourself so tangled up, you will only choke yourself to death, which is exactly what the dark wants. But if you see this hopeful, joy-filled king who was impoverished for your sake, then the horizons expand. And suddenly there is open to you a new way and kind of life that cannot be overcome or defeated by anything that darkness or death can throw at it, even the darkness that you yourself throw. Jesus is the Christ. And he will overcome you. And one day he will be enthroned as the rightful ruler for all of our eyes to see what only now we can see in faith. And the real and true king over this world will fill the belly of the hungry. He will exalt the humbled. And, and only those who lean on their own riches will be sent away empty. Because the king has more than enough for all people, including you. If you know that, you've been following Jesus, it is so easy to forget, especially where you live. And you, if you feel that, if you feel like, man, I have sort of wandered into I am the Christ narrative. I've wandered into that territory. It's so understandable. And John the Baptist has been, his words have been never more true than today for you and for me. Repent. Just repent. Say, so I don't want to keep going that way. I don't want to keep living as if I am the Christ, the one who is more powerful than any other person. Would he deliver me? The answer is yes. He put his name on you for a reason, and he will not erase it, and he will not give up on you. Repent, and your Father will welcome you home joyfully. And today, if you have been living your whole life in pursuit of this aim all by yourself, and you are realizing, man, what I really believe is I am the one. I am the one that must fix my life and be in control of everything and try to make the world a better place. Give up. It's not going to work. You can't fix the poverty of this world. You can't even figure out, figure out the poverty of your own soul. And Jesus always knew you. As destitute as you might be in the heart of hearts, Jesus loves you. And he has for you every bit of his own inheritance to give to you. That you would have what he has now and forever. And he would make for you a table even in the presence of your enemies. He has so much for you. Leave aside a life of self-determination, self-rule. You are not the Christ. Let him be yours. And one day he will finish what he is doing. His second advent will be here. And everything will be set right. Until that day, 
and we see his face, we will rejoice because he is king now and he will be king forever and ever and ever until the darkness has died and been buried, long gone and forgotten. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Living God, we give you thanks for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness, for transferring us from the powers that we could not contend with or defeat ourselves. You have seen the poverty of our own hearts, the way that we have willingly and willfully contributed to the darkness of this world. You have seen the cause of those we have overlooked and questioned. You have seen our own poverty that we have ignored. And you've had great compassion upon us. You have done a thing too marvelous for us to understand. Would you help us to understand just a little bit more about the great depth and height and width and length of your love for us? God, I pray for those here who are amongst your people who've, who know you, who have gotten sidetracked and distracted and begun to live as if they are the Christ, who've been overwhelmed with trying to fix themselves and fix the world, who have been lulled to sleep by comfort, lulled to sleep to not care. God, I pray that today as you interrupt our lives, that we would hear the, the kind invitation to repent and realize that you're coming home, calling us home to liberation that only comes in Jesus. God, let us be the people who perpetually and quickly repent and come home to you. And God, for those who are here today who have never trusted you, who have only ever pursued their own ends, their own rule, their own kingdom, who are today overwhelmed by the state of things, by the darkness of this world and the darkness in their own hearts, God, I pray that they would hear that the light has come, that the Christ has come for them to deliver them. You did not just have sympathy for us, compassion upon us, but you entered in for us, for them, and it was for them that you went to the cross and defeated death. God, I pray that they would hear that call and that invitation for themselves personally and that they would respond. And God, whether we are people who today is the first day we believe or we have believed a long time, I pray that we would be marked by the shape of the cross, that the Christ would be the one who defines us. And that all people, rich or poor, no matter our, our racial background, our economic background, our cultural background, we would find that we have found a seat at the table with Jesus. We thank you. Only you could have done it, Jesus. You are amazing. And we are your people, forever growing in amazement at your love. Thank you, Jesus.